Hi, everyone. I'm an alcoholic, and my name is Max Davidson. And but for the grace of God and despite myself, I'm sober again today. And I say that despite myself because I still have all of those tendencies and shortcomings and character defects that I had when I first arrived here, you know, in full denial. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was so in denial, not about the alcohol so much, but that I that there was anything wrong with me, that I, you know, that I had character defects. And today I don't deny I have them. I know I have them. And uh, a lot of people look at me kind of strangely when I say today I actually embrace my character defects and I embrace those shortcomings. And I can do that for the simple reason that when those things raise their ugly heads, I don't have to deny that I have those feelings. I don't have to deny that I'm angry. I don't have to deny that I'm jealous or that I'm envious or anything like that. And I can deal with it and get on with my life. Anyway, what it was like and what we were like and what happened and what we're like now, I guess that pertains to me. Well, I'll start. I was born in 1949. So I'll go all the way back there and I'll start in 1949. And I I always say that I was born in 1949 because I was born two days short or three days short of being born in the 1950s. So I am a baby born. I am a child of the 40s. I can say I'm a child of the 40s by three days. And I'm quite proud of that. And uh, I'm the youngest I'm the youngest of five children, five living children. And there were my my mom and dad, there were two two uh, I had two brothers that were born both of whom died between my, the time I came along and my next eldest brother, who's 15 years older than me, and the other uh, three siblings were much older. And uh, today there's only myself and my brother, the, fifth, the one who's 15 years older, <coughs> still alive. Both my parents have been deceased for a number of years. My dad died prior to my coming into sobriety, and my mom died when I was in sobriety, after I got sober. And that's part of my story as well. I, I'm an alcoholic who I've never worried and I've never been concerned about when I had my first drink of alcohol. To me, it makes no difference. I don't need to know when I had my first drink. It's not important. The drink that I always have to remember and never forget is that most recent drink, that most recent drunk. And I carry that one with me every day, everywhere I go. And I pray to God that I'll never forget that most recent drunk. You know, I would think that I probably started drinking in around or had my first drink if I thought about it. Really wanted to know it was probably in around 1965, 1966. So I would have been about 14, 15 at the time. And I know that it was lemon gin, and it made me terribly <laughs> sick. And I said I would never drink again. And it was several years after that before I did drink. And uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned briefly about my family. Uh, I, I don't come from a dysfunctional family. I had parents that uh, probably if my, if, if my parents, if you were to fill this cup full of alcohol, that would be double the amount that my parents ever drank in all the time I knew them. They, they didn't drink. My mother used to be convinced that she could get drunk on Tom Collins' mix, though. <laughs> and we would buy her a bottle of Tom Collins mix and she would be convinced that she was hooped but uh, you know my dad didn't drink uh, none of my siblings uh, were alcoholics or showed any signs or any tendencies toward alcoholism other than my brother but that's my opinion not his um, you know and I had a, a, a good upbringing uh, my dad was a, a carpenter he built boxes uh, commonly known as coffins that was what he did. That's what our family did all through both the First and Second World War. They built coffins. Those coffins, a lot of Canadians and a lot of Americans probably too, uh, that died in the First World War and the Second World War were buried in coffins that were made by, by my family. They also made luggage, and I still have pieces of luggage that my dad made for me um, way back in the 60s. I, I went through high school. I was a good student in high school. I never, uh, I liked school. I enjoyed school. Um, had every intention of finishing high school, which I did. And I graduated from high school in 1967. And anyone in the room who's from Canada would know that 1967 in Canada, that was our 100th anniversary of Canada becoming a country. And uh, they had this huge, big World's Fair in Montreal. 
called Expo 67. And the day after I graduated, I left for Montreal to spend the summer working in Montreal. Uh, and through family connections, I had managed to get a job at Expo, 80, or Expo 67 in Montreal, working for Air Canada at their pavilion at Expo 67. What a wonderful experience that was. And from there, when the Expo closed, I went to work for Air Canada at their base in Dorval, which is uh, where they maintain their planes in Montreal. And one of the things we used to do after work on a Friday <coughs> is we would take, take a bus, we would get a bus across the tarmac from the base to the terminal, to the, to the main terminal in Montreal. And we would go in and we would buy a one-way first-class ticket to Ottawa, which in those days only cost about $49. But what that one-way one $49 first-class ticket gave you was free access to Air Canada's lounge and all the free booze you could drink. And that's what we did every Friday afternoon, a bunch of us, until Air Canada caught on, <laughs> put a stop to it. But that's where I, st I really did start to drink then. But it never got out of control. It never really did get out of control. Um, I have to jump back to previous and earlier in my life, and that first drink was in the summer of probably 64, 65. I was a, a skater, an ice skater, and uh, I was at summer school, and the, the gin that I, this lemon gin that I drank actually belonged to the, uh, the, my coach at that time. Um, and uh, when she came home from being out with her husband, she was not very pleased to find her lemon gin was gone. That lady has now been in the program for over 35 years. Uh, that's another story. But she and I are very close friends and have been for well on to 50 years now. Um, but I, I, I was a competitive skater. I knew what it was to be disciplined. I knew, I knew what I had to do to get where I needed to go as a skater. I knew what I wanted to do as a skater. Um, and when I left Air Canada, the only reason I stayed at Air Canada for a little over six months was about eight months I stayed with them was because once I had been with them for that length of time, it gave me a free pass on their system anywhere that Air Canada flew. And I had every intention of going to Europe, which is what I did left for Europe in January of 1968 and went off and joined ice shows and skated in ice shows all over Europe for the better part of two years. And that's where drinking really did start, really did start. But I was very naive about alcohol. Um, I worked in, a, I worked in, a, in <coughs> an ice show in Garmisch, uh, Germany, which was a nightclub show. And there was a bar and it was up at the top and then there were tables on terraces all the way around the ice surface and it was a permanent nightclub show. And I used to go up and get drinks called slow gin, something made with slow gin fizz. And I really thought, and this is how naive I was, I really thought that slow gin fizz meant that if you drank it, you wouldn't get drunk because it was slow. And it wasn't till many years later that I found out that, uh-uh, that was not the reason. It was slow gin was made by a company called Slow's. But I never knew that. That's how naive I was about alcohol. Anyway, I, um, I came back to Canada in, in 1969 and went back to university, or started university, stayed for about one semester, didn't like it, and that's when I started coaching skating. And uh, my first coaching job was in the, one of the northern parts of Canada, in Labrador, Labrador City, one of the coldest places on earth. Uh, it's often referred to as the, God, as the land that God gave Cain. That's yeah. what it's referred to, as the land that God gave Cain, because nobody else wanted it. Even the Inuit don't want it. Um, and that, again, was where I really started to learn to drink. And, you know, I, I somehow decided that Southern Comfort was the drink for me until one night I drank almost a quart of it and got so deathly sick that I can't even today, even today, the mention of, if you mention Southern Comfort to me, it can make my stomach do flip-flops. It's, you know, and I never, I haven't touched Southern Comfort since then. That was the first drink to go. The slow gin fizz, the slow gin, that went, and then the Southern Comfort. From Labrador, I spent four winters in Labrador and learned to drink 
everybody drank there. It's a mining community. It was a mining community, and everybody drank, and drank heavy. Miners and people who live in mining communities drink and drink heavy. And that's probably true with any industry, whether it's the forest industry or the fishing industry or the mining industry. Probably those men and those women who work in those industries, they drink heavy. They know how to drink. And I stayed for four winters. I stayed for four winters there until I went off and started coaching in, in a, on the island of Newfoundland, which is part of uh, the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. And I ended up in St. John's. Uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, which was the capital. And a number of years previous to that, when I was in Germany skating with ice shows, I'd had a severe back injury that had never been properly diagnosed. And over the years, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And the doctors had put me on a cocktail of painkillers and Valium and God knows what else. And, you know, a combination of the, of the drugs mixed with the alcohol, uh, was not a pretty scene. And there's actually one year of my life, there's one winter of my life that I really have no recollection of. Absolutely no recollection. I function through it. I know I function through it, but I really don't recollect what and how I managed to get through that winter. And I heard somebody talking before this meeting tonight about getting out of the car and falling in the ditch and not being able to get out been there, done that, got the t-shirt and gave it away in a blinding snowstorm when I drove my car off the road in Newfoundland into a ditch and got out of the car and couldn't get out of the ditch. I couldn't get out of the ditch. They eventually got the car out, but I couldn't get my, I could not manage to get myself out of that ditch. And, you know, I, that's one of the, one of the few things that I recollect from that winter. Um, in 1975, on St. Patrick's Day of 1975 is a day that in my, in, in, in my memory and in my mind is the day that, for me, my chronic drinking really started. Uh, and that was the day my, my dad passed away. And I remember getting on, getting on a flight to fly from St. John's back to Nova Scotia to, to attend my dad's funeral and getting on the plane in Halifax, or getting on the plane in St. John's Newfoundland, and the flight attendant, who happened to be a good friend of mine, and she knew that uh, my father had passed away. When I got on the plane, she asked me if I would like a drink. And I said, make it a double or triple or quadruple or whatever. And, I, and she did. And by the time I got to uh, the end of the flight, I was so drunk, couldn't get up, couldn't get, hardly get off the plane. You know? And there's not much that I remember about that period when my father passed away, there's very little that I recall because because of the 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 alcohol and the and the drugs I was taking, the medication I was taking, and probably not taking the medication according to how it was prescribed. In fact, I know I wasn't taking it according to how it was prescribed. I just took it whenever I felt I needed it, which was all the time. You know, the, I have very little recollection of that time uh, around my father's death when he passed away. Um, very little of it. And one of the most shameful things that I probably ever did in my life was during that period of time as well. When my mother, who was, my parents had been married nearly 50 years when my dad passed away. And my mother, of course, was in, I guess she'd be in shock, she'd be in grief, you know, all of that sort of thing. And I thought it might be a good idea to give her some of my Valium, which I did. And there's a, you know, this is a woman who by that time was close to 70, and um, so I gave her this Valium, and it affected her really fast and really quickly, and uh, there's a day of that whole period that she can't, or she could never remember, because she was basically strung out on Valium, and that was my fault. I did that, you know, and I had to live with that. I had to live with that. Needless to say, uh, my two sisters, who were still alive at the time, and my brother just about killed me. They were not impressed because they knew what I had done. So, you know, that was one of the things that I needed to address when I did get sober. Um, I left Newfoundland in, in 1977 and went to Europe. Went back to Europe to live. I'd, by this time, I'd had surgery, my back surgery, and my doctors had told me I needed to 
probably take about 18 months off before I went back on the ice and started coaching. And it was at that point in time that I went back to England, went back to university, and got my degree and graduated. But what was strange was after, after the surgery when I went to England, I had no more Valium left and I had no more of these painkillers left. And this was about six or eight weeks after I'd had my surgery. And one morning I was having a bath and I was sitting in the bathtub and it felt like I, all these electric shocks were going through my body. And I never realized until a few years ago that what, what was happening to me is that I was going through withdrawal from benzodiazepines, from Thallium. That's what I was going through, was through withdrawal and never realized it. And didn't seek any sort of medical help or any, didn't go to a doctor to try to figure out what this was. I just thought, oh, it's just my body being weird. <laughs> but... Uh, Anyway, that didn't last all that long, but uh, from England, I was very fortunate that I, I, I was contracted by the um, Government of Canada to go to work on two of their Canadian bases. We had two bases in Germany still at that time. The Canadian government did two military bases. And uh, I went to, to work in Germany. I was there for the better part of four years, almost five years. And uh, that was in 1980. And... Uh, I lived with a German family, uh, and the lady who was my uh, landlady and her daughter who was my banker, uh, the old lady, she was the wine merchant for the village. And uh, her cousin used to bring up truckloads of wine. About every six or eight weeks he would bring a truckload of wine up, and it would go into the cellar of the house, and then the villagers would come and buy the wine from her you know, a bottle at a time or two bottles at a time, whatever they needed. And I had rooms in the upstairs of this house and it had one of these oil heaters. You had to go down in the into the basement with your can and fill the can up, pump the pump the oil out of the big tank into this can and then go up to put it into the into the heater that I had in my in my apartment. And uh I couldn't just make one trip a day. I had to make two or three trips a day because every time I would go down, I would have to take a bottle of wine. I mean, I always paid for it, but I had to take a bottle of wine. And I, I mean, I literally became a wino. I went from drinking hard liquor to being like nothing but almost nothing, exclusively white wine. And this went on for the better part of the first two years that I was there. I lived in this house and I was drinking anywhere from two to three bottles of this very good German wine every day. And uh, I came back to Canada the year that my mom was selling her house. And I went to see my, my doctor uh, in St. John's. I, I went to St. John's and, and was visiting. And I went to see my doctor and he did blood tests and everything. And when I went to see him, he looked at me and he said, do you drink a lot of, a lot of white wine? And I said, yes, why? He said, because some... Thing was amiss with my, with the with the diagnostics and what have you, and 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 I said, well, I live in Germany. I said that's where they make the best white wine in the world comes from Germany, from the area that I live in. He says, well, you need to stop drinking white wine, and I said, okay. So I did. I stopped drinking white wine and started drinking red. <laughs> and you know, red wine gave me headaches. And it didn't stop me. I would suffer the bloody headaches and still drink this god-awful red wine because even though I knew it would give me a headache, I'd still drink the red wine. You know, that should have been a telltale sign, but it wasn't, you know. And the drinking really just continued to get worse and worse and worse, you know. And I came back to Canada. I repatriated to Canada and went to work for the government of Newfoundland for five years and and I was working, I had a marvelous job. I was working for, it was the government of Newfoundland and, and Sport Canada. And it was part of a program that was leading up to the 1988 Winter Olympics in Calgary. And it was, a, it was basically a five-year contract um, that took me right up to the Olympics. And the thing was that I knew as soon as the Olympics were over that my job would be finished. And so I had nested myself into a very good position working for the British for the government of British Columbia. So I moved to British Columbia in 1988. 
And the drinking continued to get worse. And it continued to get worse. And it got to the point where I didn't want to be with anyone when I drank. I very seldom would go out with, with friends or anything like that. Or if I did go out with friends, I would only drink minimally at first. And then I would have an excuse to leave and I would go home. And I would shut the door and I would pull the curtains down and, you know turn off the telephone, unplug the phone, whatever, and drink at home. Towards the end of my drinking, it got to the point that if I did go to somebody's house, I usually ended up under the table with my bottle because I didn't want anybody to bug me. And people, they would take my car keys so I couldn't drive. That used to drive me nuts. They would take my car keys from me because they didn't want me to drive my car. I wonder why, you know? And it, it never stopped me. It never stopped me. And, you know, it, it continued, it, it just continued and continued and continued. And I was working with, um, in 19, 1992, I was working with a gentleman, and I've told this story before, um, working with a gentleman who said to me, he worked one side of a shift and I worked the other, and he came to me on a Wednesday around 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, after we'd been on shift for a while, wanted to know if I would close his shift down that night on Wednesday night because he wanted to leave early. And I said, sure. So off he went at eight, or just before 8 o'clock. And this went on for two or three weeks. And finally I said to him, I said, Sebastian, I said, what political party do you belong to that you go to a meeting every Wednesday night? And he looked at me with a funny grin on his face and he said, I don't go to a political meeting. He says, I go to my meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. <clears throat> and I said, well, that's nice. I said, we'll have to go out sometime for a drink and you can tell me all about it. <laughs> and he said, yeah, and I'll take you to an AA meeting sometime. And little did I know, little did I know that seed was planted. You know, my first contact with Alcoholics Anonymous had been a number of years prior to that. Um, when I was still skating in ice shows, and the girl that I was skating with was an alcoholic. And she basically lost us our contract because the show fired her. Fired her, fired me, fired us. And uh, myself and, and another very good friend did what I guess would be called an intervention and took her to her first AA meeting. And, uh, you know, I remember the lady who was at the door, I guess was the greeter. I got, we got her in and I'm leaving. I said, I'm going down to the bar to have a drink. I'll be back to pick you up at whatever time. And this lady said to me, aren't you staying? And I said, no, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't need to stay. Like, this isn't for me. You know, it just wasn't, just wasn't there. And I had another friend who was an Alcoholics Anonymous who whenever I visited with them, she would always put, do things like put pamphlets by my by the bed on the bedside table or put the big book by the bed, by the bedside table or, you know different AA literature, and I would just open that dresser drawer, that night side, the night table, and stick those books right in the drawer. I didn't want anything to do with this, you know. But it, um, you know, Sebastian, we had been to a Christmas party, a staff Christmas party. He still has the photographs of me at this staff Christmas party with this red thing on my nose and antlers on my head. And whenever I go to visit him, he gets that picture out and pins it up on the refrigerator with a magnet. He's kept it all these years. But, uh, yeah, so this was before Christmas 1991 that uh, we'd had this discussion about where he was going on Wednesday night. And all through, the, la the last, all, I would say all probably the last year that I drank, I never could get drunk. I was always cognizant of what was going on around me. I never got drunk. It didn't matter how much I drank, I might drink to the point where I go to sleep, but I knew what was going on around me. And like nothing deadened the feeling. It just wouldn't take the feelings away. It just would not take those god-awful feelings away. Everything that was going on in my life, like, and my life was falling apart, you know. And in, just before Christmas, of, Christmas 1991, I had a letter from Revenue Canada wanting to know, when I was going to pay them back the many thousands of dollars that I had basically embezzled on a, on a false 
employment insurance claim. You know, so I had that that I it just you know that was that was the kicker, and that really hit me right after Christmas of 1991. You know, and I remember my birthday. I spent my birthday up in 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 a little town north of Vancouver called Penticton with some friends, and on the day of my birthday, which was the 29th of December, I drove back from Penticton to, to Vancouver. When I got outside my apartment and was getting luggage and stuff out of the trunk of the car, as soon as I opened the trunk of the car, smoke billowed out. And the car was literally almost on fire. And I ran in the house and grabbed a bucket and filled it full of water and came out and threw it in the trunk of the car and it sizzled, you know, that matting in the car just sort of, that nylon matting just sort of fizzled away. And I remember standing there, and I was hungover. I was terribly hungover. And I remember standing there in the middle of the street and I just looked up in the sky and I said, God, why are I screamed, I yelled, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? And there were people standing on the balcony of the apartment just above mine that were looking down and they pre probably thought that I had really lost it. They probably thought this guy is he's, he's nuts. And I went into the apartment and the only thing that was left in the apartment to drink from Christmas was a bottle of rye. And I hated rye almost as bad as I hated the sound and the smell of southern comfort. <laughs> you know? Scotch was one thing, but rye, I couldn't handle rye. I just couldn't stomach it. It's the only thing to drink. So what did I do? I drank it. But again, the feelings would not go away. They just wouldn't, nothing, the alcohol would just not take it away. It just did not relieve the pain. The emotional pain, the physical pain, whatever other pain I was in, it just would not take it away. And this went on all the way through January of 1992, right up till the 31st of January. And a bar that I used to uh, go to quite frequently, where I used to drink when I would go out and drink, it was closing. And the owner of the bar had invited myself and some other friends to go to this bar that night on the 31st of January uh, for this closing party. And I remember sitting there and thinking, you know, not that I, you know, I didn't go there that much, but here I was sitting there thinking, what am I going to do when this bar closes? You know, what am I, what am I, what's going to happen to all my friends? You know, and literally sitting there crying in my drink because this bar was closing. And when it did close, the, the, um, the, the owner asked some of us to stay behind, and one of the bartenders suggested that I go behind the bar and mix drinks, and that lasted for about all of 10 minutes, because that wasn't where I belonged. I belonged on the other side of the bar where I could drink, not behind the bar making drinks. That wasn't what I wanted to do. And when we finally left there, we went back to somebody's apartment, and we continued to drink. They took bottles from the bar, whatever was left, and we took back to this apartment. And it was a long, long time before I finally realized where this apartment was. And at the next morning, I had to be, I was still coaching skating at that time. Not very much, but I was still coaching skating a bit. And I had to be to a rink about 30 miles away. And I, to this day, still have no recollection of how I got from where I was in the downtown area of Vancouver to this ice rink 30 miles away. All I remember is that I arrived at that rink and I had, I had pissed myself. I was soaking wet. Um, and I had to get into that rink, and I had students in there that were depending on me to be there that morning because they were getting ready to go to a competition and they were trying these tests that they needed to pass in order to qualify to go to, this com- to, the go to competitions uh, that season. And I remember going into the <clears throat> rink and I thought, I can't let anybody see me. I don't want anybody to see me like this. So I got down on my hands and knees and I crawled all the way around the boards of the rink, all the way around, down one side, around the end and up along the other side to where the door was to the coach's room 
on my hands and knees, I pushed the door open and I went in. And I got in there and I sat and I had to put my skates on. And this, has been, this was something that I had been doing two, three, four times a day since I was about eight years old, just putting on a pair of skates, taking them off, putting them on, taking them off. And I put those skates on that morning and I couldn't lace them. I could not get them laced. I could not get them properly laced the way they needed to be laced. And what was funny was the mother of one of my students saw this door mysteriously open and close but didn't see anyone go in. And she thought, I'd better go over and see what's going on. She thought maybe kids had gone in or whatever. So she came over and she found me in the room. She found me in the coach's room. And when she came in, I said to her, Terry, I said, I have a problem with alcohol. I'm... And she said, you know what? She said, a lot, of us, a lot of us have known that for quite a while. And she said, you can't go out on the ice with those kids today. She said, you can't. She said, you just can't go out there with them. And I said, no. And she said, I'll take you home. And she did. She took me home. And we had to go across this bridge to get from Surrey to New Westminster, where I was living. And we were about halfway across the bridge. She was a nurse as well. And she said, I think I should take you up to Royal Columbia Hospital and get you checked out. And there was something in my mind that said, if I go into that hospital, they're going to keep me. They won't let me out. And I said to her, I don't want to go to the hospital. Take me home or I'm getting out of the car right here. And I think she was afraid I was going to get out and jump. <laughs> so she did. She took me home. And it was about probably half past nine, a little <clears throat> bit after half past nine. And I went in. And I sat on the couch for two minutes and I happened to look on my coffee table and I saw Sebastian's phone number and I called him. That was on February 1st, 1992. And the reason I remember the time so well is because he had just left his house and he was on his way to a meeting in Vancouver at the Alano Club. And he got out to his car and he realized that he'd left his cigarettes and his lighter on the counter in the kitchen. And when he came back in, he heard the tail end of my call. And he immediately picked up the phone and called me. He said, what's wrong? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on? And my words to him were, Sebastian, I'm an alcoholic and I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Well, like any good alcoholic who's eight years sober, they immediately want to do a 12-step call, don't they? And he was all prepared to get in his car, drive all the way out to New Westminster from Vancouver, and take me to an AA meeting. But there's no way I was going to go to an AA meeting looking like I looked. I didn't want anybody to see me looking the way I looked. You know, not that they hadn't seen me look this way before, but I didn't want anybody at an AA meeting that I didn't know to see me looking like I looked. So his suggestion to me was to go to bed and try to get some sleep and to call him later that afternoon or call him when I woke up. And that's what I did. And to this day I can recall vividly getting into bed and putting my head on the pillow and being able to go to sleep with peace that I hadn't had for months, if not years. And I went to sleep, and I woke up about 2 o'clock that afternoon. And I showered, and I shaved, and got dressed. And my roommate at that time, we were having company for dinner. There was about six people coming in. There was eight of us for dinner. And when I went out to the kitchen, I was asked if I wanted a drink. And for the first time in my life, I said, no, thank you. The obsession to drink, the obsession to drink had been lifted. It was gone, and it's never come back. You know? And I don't know why. I don't know why, but that the obsession was gone. And it's never returned. You know, and some of those people who were at dinner that night were the same people who several weeks before, just before Christmas, had swore they would never have me, never have me in their home again because of my behavior. And it was only a few weeks after that that one of these friends said to me, that night we came to your place for dinner on the 1st of February. You weren't drinking. 
And I said, no, I haven't drank since. And they said, the difference in you that night between the time that we had seen you several weeks previous, it was like two different people. And, you know, it, I, I, to this day, I still don't know why that obsession was lifted, why God removed that obsession to drink. You know, I don't understand. And I don't question it. I don't question it, you know. And I went to my very first meeting. The next night, I did go to my very first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous with Sebastian. He took me to my first meeting. And it was in a little church in downtown Vancouver. And that meeting is no longer there. It was called the Hobbit Group. And they really paid tribute to that tradition that AA ought not be organized because the secretary hadn't turned up. There was no literature. There was no steps or traditions on the wall. The only thing they had was a bunch of drunks in the room having a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And an old-timer, his name was Don. He's dead now. I remember him. It was a podium meeting, and, and people got up at this podium and spoke for a few minutes. And I remember this gentleman, Don, got up to that podium, and he said something that changed my life. It was like every light in that room went on that night because what Don said was, if you don't pick up the first drink, you won't get drunk. What a concept. What a concept. You know? After that meeting, Sebastian and I went to McDonald's for coffee. And we sat down and he sat down over coffee and you know, he said to me, he says, I will do anything that I can do, anything I can do to help you to get sober and stay sober. But he says, if you're not ready, don't waste my time. But I was ready. You know, and if he had told me that I needed to, you know, every meeting I went to that I had to stand on my head in the corner during the meeting, I probably would have done it. I, would, I was prepared to do whatever it took to get sober and stay sober. He also made me a promise when I asked him, it was several days or a week or so after that. I didn't ask him to be my sponsor. I told him he was my sponsor. <laughs> and he still is my sponsor. Like he, he was more than glad to be my sponsor. And, uh, you know, the day that we had that discussion about being my sponsor, he said to me, he said, you know, he said, I will make you a promise. He said, I promise you, you don't ever have to get sober again. But there are certain things you have to do. And we all know what those certain things are. They're the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he also told me you have to do them in order. That's why they're numbered 1 to 12. He gave me my first big book, which I still have, and told me to go home and read Chapter 5. That's what I did. I went home and read Chapter 5. And then he said, go back to the beginning and read the first 164 pages. That's what I've done. I continue to do that. Each one of those, each and every one of those steps, um, for me has is has been life changing. That that step two, you know, step one. I I, I didn't fiddle and fart around with uh, admitting I was powerless over alcohol. I went straight to A of the ABCs. I'm an alcoholic. I knew my life was unmanageable. Life was totally unmanageable. And step two, you know, I, I had gone to, he immediately suggested that I should start looking for and going to a step and tradition meeting. And I did. And the very first step and tradition meeting I went to was step two. And I left that meeting, I was very angry. Angry at my father. You know, I was really angry at my father. I, because he died on... St. Patrick's Day, 1975. Didn't get permission for me to die. And I was angry at him. I'd been angry since 1975 when my chronic drinking started because I was really pissed off. How dare you die at me? How dare you die without asking? I was very close to my dad. <clears throat> he was like a brother. Not like a dad, he was like a brother. He retired when I was two years old. So he was always at home. He was always there. And the reason he retired at two was because he'd worked all during the war to raise his family. Now his family was raised and gone. He had this youngster at home that he wanted to be with. And he died at me, you know. 
God, I was mad. Anyway, I'd left this tradition meeting and I went home and I was so angry in the car. Three things went through my mind. I can go home and drink because there was alcohol in the house. I can go home and drink. Or I can go home, go to bed and cover up my head and just pretend that it isn't happening. Or I can pick up the phone and call my sponsor. And that's what I did. I phoned Sebastian. And he told me, you can phone me any time of day or night as long as you're not drinking. If you're drinking, don't call me. You know? But he said, you can phone me any time of the day or night. And it was probably about 9 o'clock or 9.30 when I called him. And he said to me, he said, I want you to read page 449 of the third edition of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the section on acceptance, that chapter, that, that story about acceptance. Well, I didn't quite hear what he said. I thought he said he wanted me to read chapter 4, page 49, which I did. And he told me, he said, it's about midway down the page what you're looking for. And it was midway down the page, 49. And there's a line in there that says something to the effect that I am not the alpha and the omega. I am not the beginning and the end. You know? Life and the world does not revolve around me. And I, wow! And I picked up the phone and I called him back. And I told him, I said, I read it. He says, didn't take you very long. I said, well, there's only two lines. He said, what did you read? I said, chapter 4, page 49. He said, I told you page 449. Slammed down like the phone. So I went to page 449 and I read acceptance. And that was step two. That was step two. The other thing he said to me when we were having this conversation about why I was so angry was he said, your dad did not need your permission to die. Like, get over it. Come down off the cross. Those were his words. Then he slammed the phone down and said, read page 449. You know, and that, that was step two. That was step two. And step three immediately followed that the next day and I had gone to a noon hour meeting in New Westminster and I left the meeting and I was on my way to work and I was driving down Canada Way which is a long hill that leads to the freeway and uh, in Vancouver and I made a decision that I was going to turn my will and my life over to the care of God now having made the decision as we all know means that you have to take action. And in this alcoholic's mind, and I said I was going to go into the first church that I came to, I was going to go into the first church that I came to, and I was going to get down on my knees, and I was going to turn my will and my life over the care of God. And in my mind, I knew exactly what church I was going to. It was going to be, and I can't remember what denomination, it's either a Croatian Orthodox or a Ukrainian Orthodox church. But that, in my mind, that's where I was heading, and that's where I was going. And as I got on the freeway and went around the curve just before the exit onto First Avenue in Vancouver, right there at that, at that exit, on the left-hand side, what do I see but these beautiful gold turrets, gold domes of the Akeli Singh Sikh Temple, the first church that I came to. Remember, that's where I was going to stop. And did I stop? No, I went right on by. I went right on by up to that Croatian, right up to that Croatian or Ukrainian Orthodox church and pulled into the, the yard and sat there and thought, you son of a bitch, you've gone and done it again. You've taken your will back. You made a decision that you were going to do something, the first church you came to, and you went right by it. I turned the car around. I went back to the Akeli Singh Sikh temple. I pulled into the yard, got out and thought, what the hell have I got myself into now? And I walked in there, and there's all these shoes nicely lined up. And I look into the big hall, and there's all these gentlemen with turbans and beards sitting on the floor, cross-legged, having lunch. And a little gentleman came up to me, another little gentleman, East Indian gentleman or Indian gentleman, wearing a turban and a beard, and he said, can I help you? And I told him why I was there. I told him exactly why I was there. And he said, come with me. Take your shoes off. Come with me. So I took my shoes off, and we went in, and we sat in the corner 
of this absolutely beautiful Sikh temple. We sat there and we talked for about a half an hour. And when we finished, he said something to me that has changed my life irrevocably for the last 20 years. Because what he said to me that day, what he said to me that day was, as we were finishing and I was getting ready to leave, he said, young man, seek your own truth and your own truth will set you free. And that's what I've done. And nobody, do you know what? All of the wisdom that I've heard over the years in Alcoholics Anonymous, none of it has ever touched, has even come close to what that little old Sikh gentleman said. You know, and he was not an alcoholic. But he said something to me that changed my life forever. To seek my own truth. And to hell with everybody else's truth. It's none of my business is basically what he was saying. Look after yourself. Seek your own truth. And that was step three. Because my sponsor firmly believes that steps one, two, and three are done to you. You don't really have to do very much. My sponsor does not believe that I have to sit and write out volumes and volumes of step one and volumes and volumes of step two and volumes and volumes of step three. He believes those steps are done to an alcoholic. But he certainly does believe and so do I, that when you get to step four, that's where the work starts. That's where you get your pen out. That's where you get your paper out. And that's where you start writing. So step four and step five were not a challenge to me. You know, I, I, so many alcoholics, I think, and this is only my opinion, don't see it as a fearless moral inventory of themselves, but they look at it as a fearful moral, moral inventory of themselves. They fear it. And it's not what that step says. It says fearless, you know. And that's how I had to, to attack it. And, you know, that old gentleman, Don, who I heard at my very first meeting, you know, I, I went to a Sunday night meeting at, after I'd finished my step four, and I told him, I said, Don, I'm still having a problem with this step four. And he said, without telling me everything that's in it, because I don't really want to know, tell me what's in it. So I did. And when I finished, he said, there's one thing you've forgotten. I said, what? He said, yourself. He said, you for, he said, you forgot yourself. And I went home, and I took another look at it and changed it around a bit, and, uh, and I knew it was done. And I didn't hide it in my, in my hubcap like my sponsor did. He hid his uh, fourth step. He, after he had done his fourth step, he put it in the hubcap of his car, <laughs> and he sold the car. <laughs> And then he had to go and find the car. He had to, or he had to go into the whoever, wherever this car was. He had sold it. He had to go and steal the, take the hubcap off and get his fourth step back. But that's another story. That's his story, not mine. But you know, step five followed almost immediately on step four. And I did not do my step five with the, with a, didn't do it with a priest, didn't do it with a rabbi, didn't do it with a minister. I didn't do it with somebody from Alcoholics Anonymous. I did it with a colleague a colleague of mine, because it was my colleagues, the people that I worked with, that I'd hurt the most. You know, fam family members I made amends to later on. But step five I did with, with, with a colleague the day after I did step four. You know? And uh, what a relief. What a relief. You know? Step six and seven followed immediately. You know, I stopped on my way home from doing that step five the lady I did that step five with knew nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous, and she said, I'd love to have a copy of that book. I went and got her a copy. That was 1992. She used the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to stop smoking. She's never smoked since. She used the program. She's never gone to an AA meeting, but she's read that book, and she's used this book. She used the book. She used the program to stop smoking. On my way home from that that day when I did my step five, I stopped at the Alano Club and spoke to the manager. His name was Joe, Joe B. And he said, you need to go home. And he says, read step six and seven and do them today. Because there's not much written in the big book about step six and seven. But like he said, they are so important. And he said, so many alcoholics get to step five. That's as far as, or step three, or step five. And they stop. And I did step six and seven sitting sitting on the bank of the Fraser River in New Westminster, skipping stones across the water. It was an absolutely, I mean, the river, believe it or not, the area where I was sitting that night was very calm. 
And I just sat there and skipped rocks that af- late that afternoon, that early evening. You know, and those two steps, I don't take lightly step six and seven. Step eight, you know, making that list. I had no problems making the list. I knew who I needed to make amends to, but step nine, I dug my heels in. You know, and, and they often say in this program, God will not give you more to handle than you're capable of handling any on any given day. But you've got to be willing to handle it. And at step nine, I dug my heels in because I was involved in doing something else and uh, I wasn't prepared to stop doing what I was doing. And as a result, I wasn't getting it done. And when I talked to my sponsor about it, when I talked to Sebastian, he said, have you done step nine? Have you made the amends? And I said, no, I haven't got time. He said, well, maybe if you make the amends, you could get on with what it is you need to do. (coughs) And that's what I did. There were two letters I had to write. I wrote them that afternoon, put them in the mailbox, and sent them off Saturday afternoon, sat down, and finished what I needed to do by midnight that night. And steps 10, 11, and 12, I continue to use those. I'm, I'm, I'm a step 10, and 11, 12 guy. That's the type of guy I am. I haven't gone back and done step 4s and step 5s over and over again. You know, I maintain my sobriety through the use of steps 10, 11, and 12. And today when I, when I offend someone or when I harm someone, I can very easily say I'm sorry. That was inappropriate of me. What I just said was inappropriate. The way I behaved has been inappropriate. And I apologize. And I'll try not to do it again. I never say that I'll never do it again. Because I don't know I'll never do it again. I can only say that I'll try. Alcoholics Anonymous saved my life. You know, the people in these rooms saved my life. And I'm so grateful that I came into Alcoholics Anonymous when there were still people in these rooms who had 20, 30, 40, 50 years of sobriety, those old-timers, you know. They didn't feed me a load of psychobabble and pablum. You know, they sold me the real deal. You know, they sold me the real deal. And you people, you had what I wanted when I came here. I came here out of desperation. Absolute desperation drove me through the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what keeps me here today? Desperation desperate to stay sober again today. Anyway, I want to thank the group very much for the opportunity to speak this evening. God bless you all and thanks again.